You are listening to the Adventures in Advising podcast with Colin Cronin and Matt Markin. Are you passionate about working with students and making a difference in their lives? Join us as we bring together and interview those in the global academic advising community to share knowledge, best practices, and their own advising stories. We thank you for checking out our podcast. Stay up to date and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Advising Podcast. Now, without further ado, here's the episode. Hello and welcome to Adventures in Advising with me, Colm Cronin. And hey, greetings and salutations. This is Matt Mark and happy July. Welcome to episode 14. It's been a while. How are you doing, Colin? What's new in Ireland? Well, Ireland is in phase three of its reopening, Matt. So we have restaurants are reopened and Some bars are reopened with some restrictions around that. And I suppose for me, it meant that I got to give my mother a hug last week. So got to go down to Cork and actually give her a hug for the the first time since, I guess, I was traveling in March. So that would have been February. Uh, so that that's the the big news on this this side of the the Atlantic. I don't know if nationally that made the the press, but for me that that's the big news. What what about in California? Oh man, I don't know. It seems like we're going backwards right now. I mean, California opened up much of the state in recent weeks, but now some of the areas of the economy are being put back on hold because there's a you know there's a surge now in coronavirus cases in many states, including California. And so many counties, including the one I'm in, Riverside County, uh, we're on a, a watch list in California because of the increase in cases and hospitalizations. But even like Disneyland, which was supposed to op- reopen later in July, is now back on hold along with their hotels. However, Downtown Disney, their shopping area, is still planning to reopen. And all this came around the July 4th weekend. So for us in the U.S., this is usually uh, when we have many fireworks celebrations and huge gatherings. And a lot of those were canceled, along with a lot of uh, beach closures. Um, So that way we would discourage large gatherings. But I think there was still like a large gathering firework display in San Diego. Um, So that was surprising. And of course, uh, a lot of my neighbors wanted to shoot fireworks as well, well, well after midnight where I live. So, but aside from that, um, I think school-wise for us, like it's the orientation season for CSUSB as well as probably for you and a lot of other institutions. So we just finished our transfer orientations last month and we're now going into July and beginning of August, going into all of our first year orientations. So of course, these are all virtual webinar sessions. Um, I think we have it where it's about three hours uh, for the webinar session. And then each major academic college uh, will have a session that's scheduled on various days. That way students don't have like to be sitting at their computer longer than three hours. And then we have it set up where Fridays in July, we're going to have various workshops given through Zoom. So it's a little bit extra for students to have before they start in August in the semester. Uh, But this orientation, we're actually pre-enrolling students into their fall classes, which is kind of cool. But aside from that, um, last time I was also talking about how our College of Arts and Letters was hosting a webinar discussion on racism. So there uh, were about 10 or so faculty from the Arts and Letters College, and each spoke for a few minutes about their stories dealing with racism. 
And I think it was very beneficial the way it was hosted. At first, I was like, oh, there's 10 faculty. This is going to be like a watered down version. But it really worked. I mean, hearing the very stories from the faculty helped like, humanize the topic, if that makes sense. And I think it also shined more of a light on how much work still needs to be done uh, from all of us on this. And one faculty member in particular commented on how thankful she was to be able to speak during the webinar, but also that it was through the university because uh, that she felt more of that, that freedom to speak because she says how institutions really can give the platforms where people are more free to speak their minds and experiences, and you could really feel her emotion in her statement. And of course, we have this episode um, kind of delving into these topics as well. But that's kind of where it's at over here. Sorry to hear that um, things have gone backwards a little bit. I suppose there is a fear in Ireland about, you know, what what the future holds. And I think we, we're just wait, waiting to see. Unfortunately, we have seen that our number go up in Germany and in parts of Spain. So we we don't know what, what it will mean. And for us, we we're in terms of orientation for it also doesn't take place until September. Uh, I think that's one of the enormous differences in the university system in Ireland is that for the majority of students, they don't find out where they're going to go to college until August, maybe two weeks before term is due to start. Now, term times have been pushed this year. So there'll be a little bit, potentially a little bit more time, but obviously with orientations being online, it will, it'll be very different. So I know that there's still lots of planning going, going on at the moment. And um, I'm glad to hear that that webinar went well. I know that there have been a number of webinars taking place in Ireland as well. And Dr. Uh, Ebon Joseph in particular for any listeners who are interested in the the topic she's doing some really fantastic work around this and she actually held a webinar with University College Dublin where I was working prior to moving across to Dublin City University really really interesting and engaging webinar during the week and I think hopefully that's what this episode is going to build on because really it is about trying to provide a platform to diverse voices and allow people to tell their stories. And we have two interesting interviews, the first of which is actually with Leanne McDonough, who is the uh, Traveller Education Officer in the Cork Institute of Technology, which is another institution I used to work at. And interestingly, when I was conducting this interview with Leanne in chatting beforehand, I discovered that she is from the same town as me. So that was something I, I hadn't been aware of. But I do think it is a really powerful interview. I think for a lot of our listeners, they might not be that familiar with travelers and traveler life. And I hope that it will offer a a window into that world. And I'm just really happy to have had the opportunity to speak to Leanne because I learned so much during the interview myself. And I'm 
here based in Ireland. So I I think for for listeners, it it may as well go ahead and, and just listen to what Leanne has to say on the topic. I am delighted today to be joined by Leanne McDonough, who is a traveller woman currently living in Cork in Ireland. She is the fifth of 10 children and grew up on a halting site. She became one of the few travellers to go on to third level education in the Crawford College of Art and Design, graduating with an honours degree in fine art, as well as a higher diploma in art and design education. She's the first artist to portray life from within the traveling community and her work features on the walls of government buildings. Since her debut in 2015 she has hung numerous exhibitions across the island of Ireland and has received several awards and bursaries. Leanne is currently employed by the Cork Institute of Technology as the Traveller Education Coordinator where her role is to help other travellers to realise and achieve their potential She works with both second level and third level students. And additionally, she has founded the Traveller Graduate Network. Leanne, welcome to Adventures in Advising. Thank you, Colm. It's great to be here. And I suppose we will delve a little bit into your bio and your work soon. But for listeners who mightn't be familiar with the traveling community or might not know what a halting site is, can you tell us a little bit more to perhaps set the scene and and explain that? Yeah, for sure. So I suppose as a traveler woman, I am part of Ireland's only indignatious ethnic minority. Um, and I suppose just to give a little bit of background, we were only granted our ethnicity on the 3rd of March 2017, which is literally only a couple of years ago after a very, very long battle for the same. Um, but in recent years, DNA analysis has proven that the traveling community has been a distinct group within Irish society from the mid 1600s. Um, so it was a long battle to to gain that ethnic status, but one that we're happy with um, because it proves that we're not just necessarily sail, failed settled people, um, which was the thought up until that point. Um, so we're a distinct group within Irish society, um, traditionally a nomadic group. But the laws and policies that are in place within Irish society has made it illegal for travellers to be nomadic or to travel throughout Ireland. So in relation to what a halting site is, I suppose it's just a site where um, there might be several families or extended families living together on a particular site, which is just called a halting site. It's where people would traditionally stop, similar to like a camp. Um, thanks. I think that is is helpful for listeners who mightn't be so familiar. Now, we found out when we began discussing uh, having you on the podcast that we actually grew up in the, the same town of Fromoy County Cork. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience, though, of, of growing up as a traveller and your experiences in school? Yeah. Um, discovering that sense just shows how small Ireland is, right? Um, Indeed. So I I went to secondary school in Fromoy. I moved to Fromoy when I was about 10 or 11. Um, and I progressed with my second level education in Fromoy. And I can remember at the time I was the only traveler in the school. 
Um, and that had both pros and cons, um, as you can imagine. Um, the cons were me feeling alone a lot of the time, but in the sense that alone, because I was the only traveler there, I felt like I wish I had a cousin or two to keep me company or somebody that really understood who I was and where I was coming from. But of course, I wasn't alone because I had lots of other friends from the settled community um, who were always pleasant and always friendly and always encouraging. Um, but they just did not really understand who I was. Um, and I could say the same about the teachers. But in hindsight, it didn't matter because I was never, ever treated any differently. I was just one of everybody else. Um, and I didn't feel like I was ever excluded or, or outcast for simply being a traveler which would be which would be the experience of say let's say the last generation or the generation of my parents um so they would have had a very negative experience of school and the education system in Ireland um one of exclusion one of ridicule one of um humiliation um simply for being who they were they would have been separated in classes they would have been separated in the schoolyard not allowed to play with the settled kids and simply being told to colour instead of being taught to learn. So that would have been the experience of the past generation. Um, but for me, school was a really, really positive experience. And the teachers at Loretto and from I were just amazing. They always encouraged me to fulfil my potential. Um, and I suppose where my real story starts was when I once um, went to meet with my career guidance teacher. Um, I sat in the room with her. And at this point, I suppose my teachers knew exactly who I was. They knew that I didn't really have any ambition um, to continue with my education outside second level, um, but they never they never accepted that and always pushed me to do more. So this one day I was sitting in my career guidance teacher's room and she said to me, she said, Leanne, will you just close your eyes for a second? Just forget about everything. Just please just close your eyes for a second. I want to ask you a question. Um, and I was a little bit reluctant, but I did it anyway. Um, and she said to me, she said, if you could wake up in the morning, and you could be absolutely anywhere that you wanted to be. Forget about all the hard work. Forget about all the exams. Forget about the money that you might need to get yourself there. Where would you be? And I paused for a second. And I think it was the first time I really, really gave thought to those questions. And I answered her. And I said, I think I'd love to be an art teacher or a hairdresser. And when I opened my eyes, it kind of it dawned on me well, why couldn't I be those things if I really wanted to be those things? And if I've just answered that question, well, it's just become real. Um, and I left her room that day with everything that I needed to know in order to become those two things. And we didn't make the decision as to which one it would be. I just left with all the information that I needed. <clears throat> and I think that is the turning point in my life where I kind of decided, OK, what is there for me? And I will always be grateful for that conversation with that teacher that day. So, yeah. And I suppose for, again, listeners who, you know, mightn't be familiar with the, the traveling community, the, for you, I suppose, imagining being a teacher, that to uh, the, somebody in the settled community is something that, you know, seems, you know, very, very achievable. But can you talk to what that means for somebody from the traveling community? Yeah, so it's massive. So um, up until recent years, the traveling community in general, general haven't really placed um, 
education to a high standard we don't see the the importance of it um to a certain extent simply because for a long time lots of travelers believed that regardless of how educated you are or regardless of how capable you are wider society or the settled community will not employ you simply because of your identity which is unfortunate but something that I can really stand behind because I myself really and truly believed that until I was about 16, 17. Um, So a lot of my community will come to me and say what is the point in education, why bother because you won't get a job anyway Um, but it is my job now to tackle that 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 thought process and try and change it a little bit because I have come out the other end um, in a positive sense. Um, So I suppose to continue on to third level education is not the norm within my community. Just 1% of travellers go on to third level education, which is indicative of the fact that only 13% of travellers finish their second level education. So education is not a priority within our community, but it is changing. Um, It's changing slowly, but it really, really is changing, um, which is a great thing. So I suppose for me to go on to college and to commit to becoming a teacher was not a shock, but it was just something different um, for me to do within my family and within my immediate community um, in the area that I lived. And I suppose when I did do it, like, and I, I, I even had this conversation with somebody last week. I can remember I got comments like, um, why is she doing that? Why is she bothering? She's wasting the best years of her life. What will it ever get her? Where will she go with it? And not only did I get that from the traveling community, I also got those comments from the settled community. And I think that came down to the fact that I was studying art and that was a whole issue in itself that it was art. And there's lots of people out there that have various opinions on the topic of art and what it can and can't do for you. Um, but that's a debate for another day, I'm sure. Um, so going to college and continuing with my education in that sense, it wasn't the norm. And at the time, I was the only traveler I knew in college. Um, and I won't say that it was a lonely place. It was just different. Like I, I made friends with settled people and that was fine. Um, it was never an issue for me having traveler friends or settled friends. It was just your friends with who you're friends with and it shouldn't make a difference who they are, where they come from. Um, which is why I think my experience of college was also such a positive one and an experience, um, a positive experience. So I think I just answered your question or did I ramble? No, I, I think uh, that you've answered it really well. And I think that is quite a striking statistic that only 1% of travellers go on to third level education. And that is something that you said is changing. And I, I, you're part of that. And I think we can probably talk about that in a little bit. But I suppose, you know, we talked um when we were again setting this up around your experiences of being a teacher and, and your experiences in the staff room and and maybe the the reaction of some of the other um teachers and I, I'm wondering if you would be willing to to share some of those experiences with listeners yeah um so it's it's really interesting because um I love the position that I have and the position that um I have been able to put myself into so I suppose in the early days before anybody really knew who I was. And as we said, we all know Cork, Munster, Ireland, it's a tiny place, right? So once somebody knows who you are, the whole entire country knows who you are. Um, So back in the early days when I had just graduated, so I was very early 20s, 
um, I can remember being able to um, go into a school or a staff room or a classroom or just a conference room and people not be aware of who I was or um, be aware of my traveling identity. And I would be able to sit in that room. And of course, the reason I would be there was would be because the topic of travelers would arise in the conversation or um, traveler specific topics were going to be discussed. Um, and I was able to sit in a room and get a real sense of people and who they were and their opinions before I could tell them exactly who I was. And a lot of the time, I would challenge the stereotypes that they would have because just me being there um, as a teacher and having a seat at that table was basically smashing the stereotypes that they had about travelers. Um, and it was brilliant because if you can change people's opinions and or even just open their eyes up to the fact that actually a stereotype doesn't cover everybody and there's differences within every community and every every culture, that's only a good thing. Um, but unfortunately, as the years went by and people began to find out who I was and more people became aware of me, I don't get those chances um, so much anymore. But I suppose at this point, um, I think I'm a good judge of character and I can already sense who you can work with and who you can't work with and whose opinions you need to help and encourage um, change. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with The Admissions Game wherever you podcast. And now you're based in the Cork Institute of Technology, um, another of my former institutions where I kind of began my my working career. And can you talk to me a little bit about your role at CIT and the sort of work that you do? So I love the fact that I'm now employed by CIT because I feel like my journey has come full circle. Um, and what I mean by that is when I first became a student of Cork Institute of Technology in the Crawford. Um, I remember on my first day meeting the access officer who was Deirdre Creedon, who consequently is now my boss. Um, so on the first day that I met Deirdre, um, I met her in the sense that she kind of made herself visible to me as a support if I needed her. Um, and I can remember throughout my four or five years in Crawford, um, never really needing help or support but knowing that she was there just for a phone call or a coffee or a chat or some advice if if I did want it. And I suppose throughout the four or five years that I had been a student, um, she called me up one day and asked me to get involved in an initiative that she was um, developing with a number of other stakeholders at the time. And that initiative was a mentoring program for travellers in second level schools throughout Cork City. Um, and I was like, this is perfect. So I was more than happy to get involved in that. And I suppose from that work that I did with her and the interagency group, um, I decided this really, really kind of concretes the notion that I want to become a teacher. 
So at the point um, I had four years completed, I could have left with just the fine art degree. Um, and at that point, I think I, I, I might have done that if I hadn't experienced the actual hands-on teaching um, work that Deirdre had um, encouraged me to take part in. So I rang her up one day and I was like, look, I know I came to our college to kind of become an art teacher, but I'd forgotten about it for a while. Um, now I'm thinking maybe possibly I'll do it again. And I was like, what do you think? And she's like, oh, just go for it. Definitely, definitely go for it. And just with that little bit of support, I kind of went, all right. And I, I put put in for it and I can remember being interviewed. And as I was being interviewed, I was like, yeah, totally. This is definitely what I want to do. And I can remember thinking if I could help change another person's mind in the same sense that my guidance teacher had helped change my mind or even open my eyes up to the possibilities that are out there. Um, well, then my job is done. So um, about maybe 18 months ago, um, the post came out for the job that I'm in now. And it sounded like like if you read this job description, it was literally made for me. And as I was reading it, I was like, that job is mine. There's no way I'm letting this one slip through my fingers. Um, and I ensured that I didn't let it slip through my fingers. Um, so I started in January of 19. And I suppose my main role is to work with second level students and do exactly what I just said, try and help them to open their eyes and raise their ambitions for themselves, um, help them fulfill their potential and basically help them make the transition from second level to third level and hopefully start changing that figure of 1% um, of travellers progressing with their education into third level. And can you talk maybe a little bit about what exactly it is that you, you do with the students uh, at, at second level to help them to overcome some of the barriers that, that exist uh, to, to them, you know, taking a place at a third level institution? Yeah. So the biggest thing, so as, as um, I worked as a teacher um, prior to my role here in CIT, um, I remember there was a couple of things that kept coming back to me, um, no matter what school I went to, um, no matter what area of Cork I was in, or even Ireland. So I would have worked in schools all across the board. Um, and one thing that I was always, always met with, and I, I know I've mentioned it already, was young students saying to me, there is no point in education. There's no point in third level. There's no point in further education because nobody's going to give us a job anyway. Um, and this was reinforced by the fact that when these kids tried to gain work experience, which was required of them for their, their coursework in second level, they simply couldn't get it. So if, if they needed to get a week's work experience either side of Christmas and they couldn't manage to do just that, it reinforced their notion that they're not going to give us a job anyway because we're travelers. Like, what other reason are we not able to secure this work experience? And like, I mean, that was endless. That was every school that I went to. And I could relate to that also because when I, I remember the day I turned 16, I tried to get a job in my local town and it didn't happen for two years. Um, and I can remember at that time thinking, well, why is it like it's summertime People want to take on summer um, workers. Why can't I get a job? All my friends are getting jobs. Why can't I get a job? So it does make you doubt yourself. Um, and it does bring it back to your identity all the time. So I need to try and challenge this. And the way in which I'm challenging this is um, 
my role in CIT has given me the power to approach different businesses and companies and ask them to commit to taking on traveller kids um, when it is required of them to find work experience for school. So I have um, created a database of businesses who are willing to work with traveller kids, basically. Um, So I'm just the middle person setting up the placements for these kids. So if I'm working in a school and I know I have a student in a particular year that needs a week's work experience, um, I hope that I have I've gathered um, a diverse range of businesses that I will be able to place the kid in an area or in a business that represents their interests. I don't I don't want to just give them a week's work experience in any old place for the sake of it. I want to make a match in the hope that um, if they experience work in an area of their interest, it might actually open up their eyes to the possibilities that could be awaiting them. Um, So that's one project that I'm working on. Another one is a lot of the time the kids don't believe that travellers can be certain things. So when I would be in a classroom and the kids would say to me, you're a teacher. I'm like, yeah, I'm a teacher. Of course, I'm a teacher. I'm here. I'm teaching you. I'm a teacher, just like your English teacher, your business teacher, your maths teacher, whatever other teacher who just isn't a traveller. I'm the same as them. We have the same qualifications and so on. They couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe it. And I literally I had one 12 year old girl say to me, one day and I'll never ever forget it I didn't think that we were allowed allowed be those things and that's what she said to me and by the time I had finished working with her she told me that she she wanted to be a teacher just like me which was great Um, and I hope that through the work that I had done with her I might have just helped open her eyes up to the possibilities um So there are lots of traveller kids who don't believe we can be nurses, we can be doctors, we can be accountants, we can be solicitors, we can be teachers, we can be anything that we want to be. I know all these people, I see them, they're visible to me because I work with them and I seek them out. But unfortunately, the kids don't get to see them. So what I've decided to do is I've decided to create um, a traveller graduate network. And what that is, is simply any traveller who's been through further or higher education and come out the other end and is now working um, in their own areas of expertise. I'm simply connecting us all so that we are aware of each other, um, so that we can help and support each other, and so that we can create role models from each other. So that if I have a student who wants to become, let's say, a solicitor, I then have a person who incidentally is a traveller who has gone through that process and who has become a solicitor and who can advise and speak to this child um, in the sense that they are the ones that are best suited to help and support them in, in that sense. Um, so that's what the Traveller Graduate Network is. Um, and I'm really excited by it, to be honest, um, because I know we've got amazing people um, among our community. And I think we just need to showcase them more. But unfortunately, this is also the other side of the coin. Unfortunately, a lot of these people don't necessarily speak out about their traveling identity because um, that brings with it a certain amount of negativity and also brings with it the the idea that possibly your job could be in jeopardy because within society here in Ireland, the racism and discrimination is ingrained within many systems, unfortunately. Um, And just for example, so I spoke in an event before Christmas this year there were six of us on a panel and three of us worked in education and openly spoke about our identities and three others 
had other jobs in other areas. Um, and when we were about to be filmed for the local TV um, station, those three others decided the best thing for them was to leave and not be visually represented on national TV because they felt it wasn't a good move for their job. So unfortunately, there are many travellers out there who are in jobs and are in roles who don't feel it's okay to share who they are, which is unfortunate. Yeah, I I think what you've just spoken about is really powerful and on a number of levels. I think what really struck me was when you spoke about the 12 year old girl who said that she didn't think the travellers were allowed to work in, in certain roles and I'm sure listeners will be, you know, struck by the the power of of that to to hear that you know the people think just because of their ethnicity, they don't believe that they could go on to achieve. And I think it speaks to the importance of the work that you're doing and how much work there is for the rest of society to do because this cannot just be on the the traveling community this is work that the settled community also need to do and I think what you said about the event where people didn't want to maybe highlight their their traveling identity again goes on to, to showcase that in particularly in areas outside of education that there you know is is still so much work to do i think you know it, it highlights that progress has some progress has potentially been made within the education sector but even then there, there's still probably more to do but certainly outside of of that um and i think that's where your the the the, the tgn is you know, a, a fantastic initiative that you're undertaking and I commend you for, for that initiative. I suppose as as we look maybe to, towards uh, wrapping up, are there things that, you know, uh, other initiatives that you would like to undertake or, or things that you think the, the settled community could take practical steps that, that people in the settled community could do to, to make life better for those in the traveling community and, and open up opportunities? Yeah, of course, Colm. So like I've spent the last 12 months reaching out to different businesses and organizations and companies. And what it has come down to really is um, personal contacts. And I've gotten in the door, so to speak, through my own personal contacts or contacts of friends. Um, but it shouldn't just be down to personal contacts like almost every business in Ireland and worldwide have inclusion and diversity policies. And you're not really living up to the, that inclusion and diversity policies if it's not inclusive of every community that lives on the land that you're living on. Um, so I think businesses need to try and reach out a little bit more. Um, and I suppose if if they come to the TGN or if they come to different travel organizations, they will find the people that are there and hoping and willing and, and able to be employed. Um, I suppose it's just once I suppose, and I'll give you an example here, and this, this is me now, we were trying to wrap up, but I'll ramble on again. Um, when I got work in my local town, um, I, I got it because my sister had been employed the year before 
And based on the experience they had with my sister, I remember specifically in the interview them saying to me, if you're anything like your sister, we have to have you. Um, a year or two later, they employed another sister of mine. And I remember specifically after she was employed, the, the owner and the boss said to me, um, when is your youngest sister? 16, because we have to have her too. You know what I mean? So once once you actually get to know a person for who they are, um, you begin to realize what their work ethic is like and the, their personality for the true being that they are. Um, it's only then you will know what a person or a family or a community is actually like. Um, so I would say for anybody just on any given basis, give people the time of day, ask people about themselves and about the, who they are. Um, it's only then that you will really, truly get to know a person. I suppose. I think that's exactly it. And I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me and to share your experiences. And I think it will be fascinating for, for listeners to hear about the traveling community and about the experiences of the traveling community. And it's also been wonderful to have someone else with a Cork accent on the podcast. As I said before the interview, I really think that's a powerful piece. And I was absolutely struck when Leanne talked about being in the classroom and the 12 year old student said to her, I didn't know we were allowed to be teachers. And I think that is quite shocking that in, you know, 2020, in a, you could have a group of people and they don't think that it's possible for that they would be allowed to to, to be involved in, in a profession. And I think it shows the amount of work that we have to do in Ireland around this topic. And so just thanks to Leanne for uh, coming on and, and highlighting so, some of the issues. And I think there's lots to take away there just you know kind of going off what you're saying i mean yeah it's 2020 but it seems like every year prior to this we would be like well it's 2019 and this is still happening it's a 2018 this is still happening it's 2017 this is still happening so it's like the same conversation or same you know comment that 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 we make every year so it's like when will be the year that we can really change this you know and i think it's just these ongoing discussions and continuously bringing this up and hopefully by 2021 we're saying we're not saying this as much because a lot will hopefully have changed for the better. But we do have a shout out to give, and this goes to Mick G206, who commented on Apple Podcasts. And thank you, Mick G206, for this. And this person says, I am so glad I found this podcast. I'm currently in a master's program for academic advising and just love listening. So much valuable content on both the advising practice and the world of higher education around the world. So thank you so much for that. And we got five stars for that one. So thank you, Mick GTO6, for that. And yes, we do have another guest. Who is our next guest, Colin? Our next guest is Ariel Collins, who is an academic advisor and program manager for the Arts Group Advising Center at UC Davis. And this is an interview that we recorded just a couple of weeks ago. And another, I think, really powerful piece. So let's hear from Ariel now.
All right, so our guest is Ariel Collitz, who identifies as a temporarily able-bodied, agnostic, Euro-African-American cis woman and force of nature. Ariel is an academic advisor and program supervisor for the Arts Group Advising Center at the University of California, Davis. She holds a BA degree in history from Hamlin University in St. Paul, Minnesota, and MS in counseling with a specialization in career development from California State University, Sacramento. She sees her job as an advisor as working towards creating an inclusive advising environment where all students feel valued and have their voices heard. Ariel is the founding chair of the social justice advising community that launched earlier this year and is currently serving on the Nakata work group for race, ethnicity, and inclusion. Ariel has taught staff development classes on her campus on the role of social justice in advising, effective communication skills, and utilizing an advising curriculum. Presentations include academic advising for social justice, theory, reflection, and practice, being an ally to successfully encourage and empower students and advisors of color, developing an advisor training program with a social justice lens, and voices of Asian women on our campus, which was a collaboration between students and advisors. All of her projects are collaborations. She believes that growth, creativity, exploration, and connection are central functions of human beings. She values collective action, self-reflection, open communication, empowering oneself, others, and the creation sharing of knowledge. Ariel's current project is a presentation called Social Justice, Emotional Strategies for Changemaking. When she is not advising, she is perfecting her scone recipe or on a neighborhood walk with her daughter. Ariel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. We are delighted that you're able to join us today. And I suppose, how are things with you and um, at your institution in this COVID-19 world? So it's such a weird and difficult uh, place to be in right now. Um, there's this distance and intimacy all at the same time. Um, I'm advising students from my living room. Um, and so every appointment they're, they're seeing into my home and they get a slice of my personality um, that I'm not able to show them under normal circumstances, yet we're physically distant and separated. Um, the needs that all of our students have are so different at this time. Um, you know, as some of them have moved back home and back home may have been to a different city, state or country. Um, they may still be um, in Davis, California, where my university is located. Um, and some of them are facing real hardships as a result of the pandemic. Um, and it's just been that much more challenging to connect with people um, you know, not having them in one's physical president, presence um, as the way that we do under normal circumstances. And this uh, podcast is being recorded on June 12th uh, to be posted in early July. As of right now, um, is there an update uh, for Davis or the UC system in terms of how the upcoming fall term is going to look? No, there's been little sort of drips of information coming out, but no final conclusions as of yet. I think uh, there'll be lots of people listening to this who will be able to empathize with that, both now when we're recording this in June and, and potentially uh, when it airs in July. But hopefully we'll have a little bit more clarity. Ariella, I really enjoyed your bio uh, when Matt was reading it. It is uh, impressive and engaging. And I suppose for listeners, 
could you t- tell us a little bit about how you came to work in advising? Um, so when I was in my early 20s, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. I did a lot of journaling, um, reading a lot of career development books and doing a lot of reflecting. Um, I was so very intense about it. And then at a certain point, I sort of threw up my hands and I said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'll just go find a job so I can, um, you know, earn some money. And um, then one day um, I was actually um, living in St. Paul and I was working for the University of Minnesota and I was just walking to work and I had an epiphany. And I said, I should be an academic advisor. And for a long time, I told that story like I just had an epiphany one day. And I realized that was a misleading way to tell that story because I really had put a lot of effort into reflecting. And I think that I needed both the reflection and then some time for that reflection just to sort of sink in and percolate before I could come to a realization about the kind of work that was going to be um, a good fit for me. It was probably six or seven months later when I moved out to California, and then that's when I looked for a job in academic advising. Um, And then I've been at the University of California Davis campus ever since then. And in your bio, one of the things I noticed was you have the sentence in there that says, you know, all of your projects are collaborations. And I feel like that's so true. And and it's also been recognized, right? Because I mean, just two examples I found was that uh, along with four of your other colleagues, you uh, you all won the Outstanding Campus Collaborators Award for the Advising Supervisor Work Group. Um, and also you're part of a team award for the Developing Deeper Advising Relationships Workshop Series. So collaborations, yes. And, and all these projects are you know, to help others, whether it's training, encouragement, empowerment, honest communication, sharing, creating. So you're definitely someone who doesn't just say you collaborate, you show it. Why, why is this important to you? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. Uh, it's too much work <laughs> to do it all by yourself. <laughs> um, no, I mean, it's more fun to work with other people. Um, e- even if you're a person who has like a ton of really amazing ideas, like your amazing ideas always are better refined when you're working with other people. Um, yeah, sharing the work is um, always a better way to, to get things done. Um, I don't know, just like giving presentations Um, You know, one of the things that we did for the developing deeper advising relationships, that's the social justice focused um, advising training program. Um, You know, it's like it's a three hour workshop. Um, And for me, I just I find it difficult to be on for three hours straight. Um, But if you're sharing that work with one other person, I find it easy to be, you know, like fresh and engaging Um, when I'm doing that with someone else. So for that reason, it's just, 
it's easier and it's more fun and you you get a better result. So I like, why wouldn't you collaborate with other people? I, I totally agree. And as somebody who collaborates with Matt on this podcast, I'm all in favor of uh, working with others and, and it definitely helps to, to sharpen ideas. Now, I got to know you, I suppose, through Nakata and some of the Nakata events, but how did you initially get involved with Nakata? You know what? I'm not even sure. Um, I remember how I initially got involved with Nakata. Um, I think that the first national conference that I went to um, was probably in 2014 um, in Minneapolis. Um, and I had already been a Nakata member before that, um, but somebody had sent something out through the Fine Arts Listserv. Um, I work with fine arts students primarily. Um, and, you know, they said, like, let's do a let's do a presentation on some career topic. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I've got a master's degree with a, you know, a counseling with a career emphasis. And I said, oh, this is perfect. Um, you know, I've got the experience in these two particular areas. Um, and so once I went to that conference, that's when I really started getting involved with the organization, um, meeting people, making connections. Um, but I obviously, because I was on that listserv, I had been uh, involved with the organization um, prior to that, at least enough to be a member. But I don't recall how it was something that people on my campus were talking about. Um, so probably just through networking on my campus. Yeah, and, and you've been part of a lot of lot of different uh, presentations, um, also within Nakata. And I know when we were talking uh, prior to the podcast, it was like, wh when did how did we meet? And I want to say that it, we've met before at conferences, but I know one for sure. I've, I've seen you present, and you presented with uh, Leah Magumi um, on uh, one of the panels uh, in Phoenix uh, that I can remember. And and so there's always a lot of networking going on. And that's also kind of how this kind of turned out was uh, when I was talking with Leah about uh, the upcoming podcast. And I just asked, hey, do you know anyone? And she's like, I know the perfect person. And so we, we were having a conversation about, the, about this episode. And um, you had chatted about how with uh, some of the recent with the recent events going on with, with George Floyd and the protesters uh, protesting um, against the murder and against police brutality and how we saw, you know, not just cities, not just states, not just the country, but, you know, multiple countries getting involved. It, it became global. And if you're able to, can you talk about like the UC system or UC Davis's response? Because I think I read that the UC system did like a system wide like moment of silence. And um, at Davis, I think Chancellor May announced the formation of like a, a next generation reforms task force. Yeah, so. My, you know, my campus has responded in lots of different ways. Mm -hmm. um, there were different events that have been put on by my campus. Um, Chancellor May um, held his own um, moment of silence um, with some other folks on campus, like um, the leader who's spearheading our diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, and also the director for the Center for African um, diaspora student success. Um, and then, you know, there's a number of racial healing circles that my campus has held. Um, there have been, you know, like multiple different offerings um, every week. Um, and then there's also been other efforts, um, 
you know, by individual um, departments and other units on campus um, as well. Um, I know that there was one unit on campus that closed down for a day and they had a day of education. Um, and so they sent out a resource list and said, you know, we're closed on this day so that people can get themselves educated. Here's a resource list to get you started. And then you can continue, you know, with your own education, you know, for the rest of the day um, based on whatever other resources you find. So lots of different efforts I've seen on my campus. Um, I suppose it's been even here in, in Dublin, we have seen um, protests and I my my own institution, Dublin City University, um, issued a, a, a statement or a response. But I know that I have talked to people myself who have been at institutions where they maybe aren't as happy with with the response or maybe they the they feel the institution itself doesn't know how to respond or they don't know how to respond i mean ireland while dublin might be you know a, a cosmopolitan city ireland itself is still relatively monocultural so i think for some people here and and people elsewhere and at different institutions there can be um a, a struggle to know how to respond and how to respond to our students' needs. And is there any advice that you would have to, to people who find themselves in that situation around where they could begin to to educate themselves? Yeah, on an institutional level, I would challenge that um, because there are faculty in history departments at every institution um, and um, philosophy departments at every institution. Um, even, you know, the, even the smallest institution has someone who's an expert somewhere that can speak to this. Um, so on the individual level, um, for those who don't know how to respond, um, I think that Educating oneself by looking at other folks' responses is a good way to start. Um, and knowing that not all responses are equal. There was um, an article that came out in the Chronicle of Higher Education. Um, and I will note also that it was an article that is behind their paywall. I don't know if folks have access to the Chronicle of Higher Education through all of their institutions, but I know that some of them do. Um, you know, through their library systems. Um, and so that article I found gave people a tool to be able to critically analyze what kind of differences there were between those responses. And so just looking at what those were. And also, you know, I would encourage folks when they've seen their institutions not respond to advocate for a response. Sort of, I think we've all now come to see that the social default is racism. And so when there is no action, that means we're, we're in default mode. And so the message that your institution that does not act is sending is one of racism. Yeah, and I think yeah, we've 
I think we've seen a lot of schools that have responded, um, or maybe their campus president or chancellor that has sent something out. But then, you know, like you're saying, there have been other institutions that may not have sent anything out or have any response to it. Now, when we were um, chatting about the podcast episode, you had mentioned that you had mixed feelings regarding everything that was, you know, going on from like the global supports and institutions talking about having the conversations um, and its impact. Can you can you explain what you meant? Yeah. So there are a lot of people who, in an attempt to do something or make a difference, are trying to move forward with actions that reflect the status quo thinking. Um, So one of the things that um, I've seen a lot is we need to um, make more resources available for African-American students. So on one hand, um, you know, providing resources for people is always a good thing. And on the other hand, this can reflect a kind of thinking where we have a group of people and there is something wrong with them. They are flawed and so we need to fix them, which is a different way of thinking than we have a system that is intentionally advantaging a group of people and disadvantaging another group of people. And so there's no effort put into looking to the benefits that some people are enjoying at the cost of other people. If you have that deficit thinking, then it reinforces the stereotypes that there is something wrong with Black people versus taking a step back understanding the historical legacy of racism and trying to tease out all of the assumptions that have been put into our institutions and also those assumptions that sort of we ourselves have taken on and that we live in our everyday lives. And um, I know that you are chair of the social justice advising community with NACADA and that you've been, um, I think, involved in a presentation or a a piece of work around allyship. And can maybe you talk a little bit around that and maybe drawing on on, on what you've spoken about um, in in the last few minutes, just around allyship and, and what what that what that means to you and what what that would what that should look like um so first of all for the social justice advising community um i thought it was really important to create an additional space um, within nakata um, for us to come together um, and talk about um, these issues i know that it's it's these these are not easy conversations to have. Um, it brings up a lot of difficult emotions for everyone. And I wanted to create a space where 
people felt included to come and do this difficult work. Um, as far as allyship, what that looks like is uh, folks who want to come and do their own work. So, and this depends on um, the context that you're talking about. I'm going to talk about um, racism because of the fact that today is June 12th, 2020. Um, so it, using that as the specific example, um, for white people, it means looking at what whiteness means, looking at what it means to have a racialized identity as a white person, looking at the privilege that that gives you, um, looking at what blackness has meant historically, um, which is a really difficult and uncomfortable thing for white people to do. And there've been many ways which that's been hidden and obfuscated in our society. Um, and then being willing to show up in spaces and release some of that pri privilege and I say some of because I want to be, maybe I want to take this back later, um, showing up in spaces and letting go of your privilege um, and understanding ways that you can sort of change the script that we've been living in our societies. So oftentimes white people appear in spaces and they take up all the room and they speak and their voices are listened to. So having white people in a space and amplifying black voices and instead of speaking, listening. And an ally is someone who's done their own work so that they can listen, so that it doesn't need to be about them, so that it doesn't need to be about how they're feeling about racism that they've done their own work, that they don't need to take up the time and energy of Black people to listen to their woes about racism. And in one of your uh, past uh, webinars that you were part of, that was the Academic Advising for Social Justice Theory, Reflection, and, and Practice. And one of the things you were referring to before was of having that self-reflection. And in one of the post-webinar activities, there was an activity called um, Who Am I? Do you feel that this that could be an activity, something that anyone could do to start the self-reflection or to be part of that self-reflection? I think that is one of the many activities that are available to people. Um, and those that may not know what that activity is, could you describe it a little bit? Yeah. So in that activity, people identify 10 things that make up who they are. And then they go through the process of um, crossing off identities on that list to come up with their one most salient identity. Let me, let me ask this. Um, so Cassandra Serrano uh, we, was hosting a webinar um, about a week ago. And by the time this gets posted, it'll be a few weeks ago um, on um, allyship. And one of the questions that came up in the chat, and this kind of goes back to the self-reflection part, was can you speak to, to building the culture of self-reflection on our campuses? And you know, how would that look at both an individual but also a collective level? 
Um, so one of the things that I think that you need in order to have the capacity to do that kind of self-reflection is the sense of internal safety. If you reflect on something, um, let's say that you said something inappropriate, um, which the more aware you become, the more research that you do, reading that you do, podcasts you listen to, um, you know, TED Talks you watch, the more aware you become, the more you will learn about things that you are doing that are harmful. And so the more difficulty you will run into. And so if you don't have a way to find an internal sense of safety, the more that you will try and avoid doing this work. And so I think that you need a way to be able to care for yourself while you're doing this difficult work and you need to be able to care for your community. Um, I've been in some um, work cultures where people are, and this may sound familiar to some of you, where people are just ready to catch anyone's mistake. You know, there was a typo in the email that so-and-so sent out and then everyone knows about it and people are talking about it over the over like lunch break or whatever that kind of environment in general is not one that's conducive to doing this work. The kind of environment where people will gently say to one another, here is this thing that you said, and this is why it's harmful and have real compassion and understanding for each other and themselves as they're doing this difficult work. I think that's key because if you're in a place where mistakes are then followed by beating oneself up, or beating people in the community that you're in up, it's going to make it very difficult to do this. So kindness and compassion so that you can understand that mistakes are followed by a sense of safety and compassion. It will make it so much easy for, easier for you to have those learning moments because it will feel safe to do so. I suppose you, you talked a little bit earlier around the re, some of the reasons why you wanted to establish the social justice advising community. But maybe you could tell us a little bit about um, what, what, any events that are coming up um, within um, that community that um, or plans that you have uh, for the 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 near and the maybe not so near future well we're planning an event that's happening between now and when this podcast is going to air called conversations on social justice in the age of the pandemic um, and this is going to be um, focusing on the way that um, we've had to adapt in light of the pandemic and the um, impacts that that's had for different groups. Um, one of the things that I've noticed about the pandemic is that a lot of things changed very quickly. Things that our institutions said could never happen fast. And so I just want to just have this in the minds of everyone that our institutions can change quickly. And it is just that people need to want it to happen, and then it can. 
Yeah, and that is so true. And right now, our podcast episode uh, that we've recorded already is going to be posted this upcoming Monday. And there's someone by the name of Dewan Jackson from the CSU system that talks exactly about that, where things that seem like it could never happen or was you know, behind a whole bunch of other projects, all of a sudden now it got done within hours or days, especially like moving things, forms from a paper petition to an online submission. Um, so things can happen. But yeah, if, if as long as whoever's in charge or the group or the individual wants it to happen, it will happen. But that's a very, very good point. And I think also just, um, you know, things that we were talking about before is as much as there's been this um, global support, I guess, this is not just a moment in time. Like this is something that has gone on, you know, for years and conversations that maybe other institutions have been having um, groups or task force that they've developed, others that maybe this sparks something. Is there a fear though that, as much as some conversations have started that they might stop and there's, there's no continuation of it. Um, I think that's always the fear with any social movement as it's gaining momentum. Will this momentum maintain? Um, And I think it's just the responsibility of every single individual for themselves to figure out how they will maintain that momentum. And that's, that's what it will take. And so For everyone who's listening, you know, my question is, how will you keep yourself accountable for making sure that this is um, on the forefront? What what is your action plan that will keep you on track? And I think that's what it it, it's the the point, I suppose, that um, people need to, to ponder upon as we, you know, take take the next steps and what 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 are they i i think the 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 will is there and I, both math and you and duan spoke about the way in which action can take place so if we can put action plans in in place with you know definable um things then hopefully our institutions will respond to those because there is now you know, evidence that we can point to that says, you know, you can do this. So I, I, I think a lot of what seemed before to just be talking points or could could be um, labeled as uh, by institutions as, well, we'll have a task force and we'll look into this and, you know, we might get around to, to, to looking at that at some point. Now there is real momentum and it is about putting that action plan in into place as you as you talked about. And I suppose it's up to all of us individually and at our institutional level, at sectoral level and through, I suppose, organizations like NACADA to bring about the, the change that we're talking about. And to do that through collaborations. Absolutely. But we want to be mindful of, of your time and, and the busy schedule uh, since Davis is still finishing their finals this week. Ariel, thank you so much. And we hope this uh, conversation that, again, can can continue and things continue with, with actionable steps. And we'd love to have you on the podcast again. I would love to come back. Thank you. 
Thank you again, Ariel, for being with us for that interview. And the article that Ariel was referencing was through the Chronicle of Higher Education. The title is Higher Ed's Toothless Response to the Killing of George Floyd. Statements by College Leaders Reflect an Unholy Alchemy of Risk Management, Legal Liability, and Trusting Anxiety. And this is an article that was written by Jason England and Richard Purcell. Now, just FYI, you do need a subscription to read that article. So that the article that Ariel referenced uh, is subscription-based through Chronicle of Higher Education. But we'll leave the title of the article in the show notes. And you know, maybe do you have a subscription to read that? And also just to follow up with the Who Am I activity that was mentioned. Um, the whole idea is with that activity is to list 10 words that describe you and then cross off those words until you only have one left. And that last word on your list is supposed to be uh, representative of the descriptor that best or most accurately describes you. So this can be an activity that could lead to some real life reflection or even a discussion on identity descriptors and why those descriptors represent our sense of self. Um, but also what came out of the webinar that was also referenced in um, Ariel's interview that she was a part of for Nakata on social justice, some questions that um, really like we could ask ourselves or have as, as a discussion uh, include what training, professional development opportunities and or resources have you engaged with around social justice? And were these helpful to you as an advisor or administrator or which role that you do have? Also, what does the term social justice mean to you? What concepts grounded in social justice do you struggle with or find difficult to understand? And lastly, what practices do you currently implement to provide equitable resources to your students? So great questions, I think, for us to self-reflect on, but also to maybe hopefully engage or continuously engage at our respective institutions. Absolutely, Matt. I think between the questions and from what we've heard from both Leanne and Ariel, there's lots to consider today and just thanks again to, to both of them for taking the, the time to chat to us. It's one of the episodes where I certainly have learned a lot from both of those interviews. And to our listeners, thank you to those who took the time to review us on Apple Podcasts. And we really appreciate that. And if uh, if anyone else uh, wants to do that, that would definitely be appreciated. We are going to have uh, another uh, at least you know episode coming up later this month um, where we're going to look at issues around graduate students or postgraduate students, as we say uh, in Ireland and the UK. And we are already making plans for the autumn or the, the fall, as uh, you say, over there in California. Uh, you know, thanks to uh, all our listeners. Thanks to Nakata for the continued support. And we look forward to, you know, hearing from our listeners if there is a topic that you would like us to cover, if there's somebody you think we should interview, if there's a, a question you'd like us to pose, please do get in touch. Uh, you can find our contact details in the, the show notes. Uh, we are uh, both on LinkedIn and across various social media platforms. So do reach out and get in touch. Don't want a complication.